Welcome to the Upside Podcast, powered by Upside Global and hosted by Julian Blinn, founder and CEO of Upside Global. The Upside Podcast is listened to weekly by over 6,000 sports and tech executives from all sports leagues and teams in the United States and around the world. Julian has been developing technologies for professional sports teams for over 10 years and has worked for major tech companies along with sports tech startups. In each episode, Julian interviews global leaders in sports to share knowledge on emerging technology in the sports industry and how these technologies can help improve the performance of individuals and organizations both on and off the playing field. And now here's your host, Julian Blinn. So today we have the honor to interview again a group of sports performance experts on that gets rehab and return to play. So you know, first we have Jason Ann, the head of rehabilitation and a team physical therapist for the LAFC, a top MLS team. So welcome back, Jason. Thank you, I appreciate it. Good to see everyone again. Great, so uh, thank you, Jason. So then we have uh, Dr. Derek Lawrence, the head athletic trainer for the US men national soccer team. So welcome back, Derek. Appreciate it, always happy to be here. Great, thank you, Derek. And then we have Aten Corias, the CEO of Kinvent, a company that helps sports and rehab professionals assess progress and build engagement and motivation. So welcome back, uh, Aten. Thanks, Julian, happy to be here. Great, thank you, Aten. So, and then we have Queen Sandler, uh, the CEO of Plantiga, the smart insole system for analyzing movement in the real world. So welcome back, Quinn. Good to be here, thanks. Great, and then uh, we have uh, a new person, well, kind of new, uh, Kevin Martin, who's the CEO of QuickBoard, a leading visual training and rehab technology company. So it's great to have you back uh, as well, Kevin. Yep, thanks for having me, Julia. Great, so hey, guys, there's a lot to cover today. Uh, so why don't we just uh, kick it off? Uh, the first topic I wanted to discuss was with you guys, how to manage an athlete's rehab return to play when managing senior management's expectations, right? Expectation from the GM. So I came up with this idea because I was talking to a friend of mine in the NBA, the strength coach, and he told me that it's not uncommon for senior management to be actively involved in an athlete rehab process. So sometimes the GM would say, hey, they would tell the staff, what types of workout an athlete should do, or when they should train or not train. So uh, how do you guys manage your athletes have returned to play when managing senior management expectation, both, I guess, from a, a team perspective, performance staff, as well as a vendor perspective? Anybody wants to start? I feel like that has to be Derek or Jason to start. <laughs> go ahead, Derek. I can go. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, I would say almost, you know, from my experience, I've been pretty fortunate to not have the upper management kind of dip their hands into our work and business. Now, are they involved in some way, shape, or form? Absolutely. And that involved, and that means communication for sure. And are they inquisitive? Do they ask questions? Yes. But have I dealt with anybody that has kind of guided or made recommendations? No, not really. And that's also just a built off the relationships that you create with the upper management from the get-go. And if they're the ones who are actually hiring you or involved in the hiring process of the staff, then, you know, it really has to come down to trust from their side. And if you're able to build the trust, the respect, and that even goes with the coaches too, because coaches can probably step in a little bit, especially if they're former players, right? And give their two cents about it. But if you've built that trust and that level of respect, then most of the time you won't have that issue at all but I can understand in many other sports where there's higher stakes maybe 
I, I, yeah. for me, I, I haven't worked in high stakes per se. I, obviously, with my position with the national team, you could say it's high stakes, but you know the players aren't necessarily owned by the national team. Uh, so you do have to treat them rather differently and uniquely as well. But you know, just getting back to the original question, uh, you know, it's just not been part of my uh, career, my experience. Um, and again, I think it all just goes back to how you handle the situations with the upper management from the get go. Um, to let them know, like, this is my area of specialty. This is why I'm here. And so if you don't trust me, then maybe we need to find something better in a sense. Yeah. So you never had any, any big challenges, no, no major problems. So, uh, luckily. Okay, cool. Yeah. So maybe, uh, maybe Jason, from your perspective, working for the ADFC, have you been into situations like this? Yeah, you definitely see it on different levels. Um, I've had past experiences in, in the NFL as well. So you, you definitely see parts of it. But like Derek said, it's important to have um, that communication with management and technical staff. I think it's important to understand, one, their side. Like their goals are to have players available and have them performing at the highest level. And that's the overarching goal on their end. Our goal is to make sure if they're healthy and they're physically ready to do so it's just uh, it just so happens everything else is in the gray um so um we're fortunate here at lafc where there is pretty good alignment um across lines and but you always kind of run into those situations where like hey how come this guy back isn't this back as fast as xyz and it's important to keep them updated throughout the rehab process but also when there's a decision to come back to the field, whether it's training or playing games, um, depending on how big the game is or where we are in season, um, to highlight the risk that is involved uh, and to also involve the athlete in the decision. Let's say we're trying to get someone back and it's not ideal at this situation, but the game is big. Um, just making sure that everyone's on board with the decision and we don't want to make any dis, um, decisions unilaterally, um, trying to get everyone involved on that standpoint. So talking to the player, talking to the coach, and they have their own conversations too. Like you, you get put in situations where the coach talks to the athlete. Athlete is always going to say they're ready to go, mm -hmm. almost always. And where we're going to build on our relationship with the athlete and also highlight that conversation. Like, yes, he's telling you this, but this is what I'm seeing. And this is how he's... Uh, performing on the field when we're doing our drills. So taking everything into consideration make, to make the best um, uh, choice for the organization and, and the athlete at the same time. But it's not always that easy, let's say that. Well, Jason, so Will, Will Ferrell doesn't get you into trouble. Will Ferrell doesn't step into your, I'm just joking, but. As a goalkeeper coach, yeah, he comes in with his legs. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one thing I can say from the vendor side, just my experience is I've been working with teams where I've had the athletic trainer or the strength coach ask if we can help them in their reporting to management. So funny enough, I've taken feedback from ATs in the NBA on how to better our PDF report so they can share it with the AGM and the GM. So indirectly, I've had 
and it's actually driven some of our product roadmap of how we make PDF reports and just trying to serve up the data, change from baseline, things like that, that very simple that they can turn around and just forward as part of their weekly report on some big rehab. So indirectly, I've had that experience, but that's actually made our job a little easier to kind of craft some better PDF visualizations and things like that. That makes sense. I think it's yeah. from our professional standpoint, yes, we like to look at data. We look to look at objective measures, but like Derek said, a lot of like at LAFC, our GM and our head coach are all former players. So they will, they're, they yeah. pull on two parts of their brain when, when we have conversations. So it's important to have that communication and to have that alignment. And when they go into player brain, it's like, just push through it. It's like, hey, we're also seeing this. So it's, it's always a conversation. Yeah, and I can understand that where it's, yeah, it's disregarded, right? <laughs> because it wasn't as, necessarily wasn't as big as when, when they were playing in terms of data collection. But, you know, at the least, maybe hopefully that you're documenting your position and be like, hey, look, this is what I presented in the event, something, you know, tragic happens and right. or some, some sort of secondary injury. So it's kind of a, a CYA. You know, but yeah, I get it. No, there's sometimes it's it's just uh, falls on deaf ears, right? And it's just got to be back. You know, no, um, you know, there's really no debate about it. And it's it's similar, even you know, at the 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 lower levels of you know, not necessarily just professional, uh, but amateur. You know, whether it's coaches, you know, pushing these athletic training staffs to get their players back, you know, for games. Or, um, you know, one kind of my previous life in working with, uh, you know, athletes, you had the parents who were upper management. <laughs> they're right. like, they gotta, they gotta be back or they got these, you know, be back for this tournament. So, um, you know, much uh, lower level, but, you know, very similar sort of communication uh, that's required. Makes sense. Um, maybe A10, do you, have, do you have any comments on that or any thoughts? Well, everything here is a matter of compromise because at the end, uh, a player that is may, may not be ready to play, uh, but if the stake is too big, then sometimes we will take the decision to, to put him in. I have a very good example where sometimes it, it, it actually it gets back to us. So Rafael Varane, once again, one of my favorite players in uh, Europe, he was actually playing for Real Madrid. And in 2019, they were in the semifinals of the Champions League. So in the first game, I think it was against Milan. Uh, he got, um, I, th I think, he, he, someone him, hit him in the head. So he he didn't feel so well. And so, like three days after, he had another game. So he played the game. It was like the semifinals of Champions League, and uh, he actually was the head of defense for Real. And they got two goals because he was in concussion. Mm. The thing is that. Everyone in the team, like the trainer, uh, the, the manager, everyone wanting, wanting him to play because it was a Champions League. And actually, at the end, Madrid got eliminated. So sometimes this is what happens. And sometimes you get you you play the risk and you win. So uh, everyone has to be on the same page because at the end, uh, we could say that it's it's the physio, the physical therapist's fault that didn't see that something was wrong. Uh, but also, if at the end we would lose, they would say that the physical therapist didn't allow us to have Rafael in the game. So it's all in uh, terms of compromise, and this is where data can be very useful. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, thanks, A10. 
So the next question is, and I'd like to start with again, Derek and Jason, uh, it, it is related to the tools, right? Uh, and the best tools that you guys uh, might, might have seen or have been using uh, for athletes returns to play and recovery. Why do you think these were the best tools? And I expect, look, I expect A10 and Queen and Kane say, we've got the best tools on the market. I'm joking. But, um, so what, what about you guys, Derek and, and Jason, as far as the best tools you guys have used? Go ahead, Derek. <laughs> All right, no problem. Uh, I mean, I think really when you say best tools, I think it, it's really dependent on each situation. You know, if you look at the products here represented by Kevin, Ethan, and Ethan and uh, Quinn, you know, someone may say like, "All right, in this situation, we need you know Plantesia, no problem." Like those type of items, right? But in general, if you really want to get down to it, I mean, you know, for us with the, the field sports that we run, you know, GPS is one of the most important pieces. And then any other, you know, strength measurement device that we're able to use um, in terms of, and again, it's, it's all based on situations. So if we're dealing with muscle injuries, this is something that's going to be important for us. So anything that we can get an objective measurement in that way, if we're looking at joint issues, you know, then do we look at biomechanical feedback and objective measurements in that way as well you know so there's a number of tools out there it's just all very dependent on what's going to fit for that specific situation in, in yep. my opinion at least so that's, so that's a good point. yeah yep yeah I'll, I'll second derek it's uh it's everything that he said um i'm always interested in seeing how we can expedite the healing process um because in our in the nature of our sport, we have to turn guys around pretty fast. And uh, I've been like the last two plus years, I've been big into hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Um, I think it's a, it's a great recovery tool. Um, class four laser has been working really well for us. Um, and as of late, been trying some red light therapy, stuff like that, because athletes are lazy at, at, at points, right? They wanna do some stuff that's passive. Yes, we're gonna go through exercises. Yes, we're gonna through, go through um, on the field and, and in the gym, but sometimes they just wanna lay down and just get some passive healing. So those are some of the tools that we've used as of late, which um, I feel do help in the healing process. Okay, I would, Thanks. I'll, I'll piggyback on that real quick and just say, I, I mean, the, the best answer should have been you know, the best tools are our hands and our minds as we yes. go through the entire process, because that's what's going to actually get them through it. <laughs> and also your athletes. Your athletes that's are right. among the best tools that you can have. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's I'll piggyback on that on the relationships, too, because if you've if you've rehabbed enough of these guys throughout certain injuries, you kind of know what works best for them. And then if they get hurt again, then you're like, okay, I'm going to go to this, uh, go through this pathway where when it, for this other athlete, we might go through this other pathway. So um, if you have enough tools, then you can kind of pick and choose which works best for them. I, I've also seen how critical it is to the relationship between you and the athlete. Like sometimes they are improving and you need to have more of like a human to human discussion to like bump up their mental health where it's like, no, like you actually are good. So I often see like overhearing or kind of through osmosis, like a lot of it is psychological. So there's tools that you're using and say, Hey, look, look, the data from GPS says that we're hitting our max sprints. And, but like, no, you actually are good. Like you can kind of push yourself now. And I see that obviously I'm not talking to the athlete, but I see that often is 
the psychological component to return to play is so foundational. Um, and data maybe is often used to just show them like, look, you are good. We're, we're like back at baseline. Yeah, and, and Quinn, I was just talking yesterday to this company called Prism Neuro, and they kind of look at the psychological aspect of athletes. It's even, even, I, even quite, I'm sure even I understand how to do it. Uh, the, the NBA tech expert was kind of like, this is super interesting. I don't know how it works, but it, I don't know. It's weird. But, um, it's actually half the reason why we do a lot of, like we push baselining. And so I see so often that it's in return to play that you can show somebody how close they are to some of their baseline tests on the field of play is the mental kind of connection. Like, okay, okay, I'm good. You know, I'm good. I can kind of push myself again. Um, Cause I know athletes say that they're good often, but you can kind of get that like split second response that often they, they, they kind of know they're not, so. Right. But that company actually has a way to know if they're ready to go back to, to play or not based on the test that they make them take which is why I think it's really interesting. But anyway, uh, any, anybody else wants to uh, comment on that? I, yep. I think there's a huge mental yep. side to healing. Um, I had a good conversation with some of our upper management that were former players. And when they'd had an injury as players, it would take a long time. Now that they have the same grade of injury now, like if they're playing staff soccer or whatnot, they heal that much faster. And then they'll often talk about how they don't have that mental stress of getting back on the field because this is their livelihood. Um, and there's been other situations where guys weren't healing as fast as we had thought. And then the, the more that we dive in, they may have situations on the outside that are stressing them out, that are you know not allowing them to sleep, um, stuff like that, um, which can definitely affect their healing process. Yeah. Uh, anybody else? Yeah, I think, you know, just to, you know, as uh, Derek and Jason mentioned, I mean, it's situational and depends on the individual, knowing the individual um, are significant. And, you know, it's it, it definitely helps providing you know, the bilateral data and that way they can see what the existing deficit is. And then they're seeing, um, you know, that deficit close uh, the further they get along in rehab. And it's just reinforcement. It's not a silver bullet. It's, it's one component. And I think, again, that comes down to the individual because we uh, work with a, a well-known um, sports physical therapist that, that works with a ton of, of professional level athletes. And you know, he said like some athletes walk in and they're, you know, they've got their brace on and they're reaching for tables, you know, kind of not wanting to, to uh, you know, put too much weight on, on the brace. And then you've got, you know, another, uh, you know, athlete, He's kind of jogging in with the brace. He's like, hey, yeah, no, I'm feeling great. And he's like, what are you doing? And, and, and so it, it comes down to the individual as well. So I think you guys, you know, hit it on the head with um, the objective component uh, to reinforce and build confidence uh, as well as, you know, the communication with the athlete as well. Yeah, good point. Anybody else before we jump on the next topic? No? Um, so, hey, the next topic I wanted to discuss was, you know, last last time we talked about the best practices, right? What to do uh, when, when it comes to the athlete rehabilitation. So this time I wanted to ask you, what are the things not to do or avoid doing, uh, re, you know, when you have an athlete rehabilitation? What are the things, absolutely, you, you, you just can't do it. 
or do you have to avoid doing that? Anybody? Maybe I'll just leave. From a vendor, but like, I just see often that decisions are made without objective data. And I don't mean just from my system. I mean, like in general, you know, you're progressing, you're doing a return to run program uh, and you're not measuring the mechanics of running or even timing gates. Like they're just literally using their eyes. And so I often am surprised sometimes as much objective data systems that people force plates, dynamometers, you know, I am using that we make that look at biomechanics, not using that data um, is just something I see from some of the best. So I don't know. Again, I'm not a practitioner, but uh, I would at least have that as a part of my tool set. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Makes um, sense. I've sort of seconded that there where we've made a shift in the last, geez, I don't know, eight, eight to 10 years, I guess, uh, in the rehabilitative area where you kind of went from guessing on what you're doing to now you can make it more objective. And so one of the things not to do is probably not to guess. Now, there are times where you're going to estimate or assume based off the data that you have that they are in a position to progress through the rehabilitation process. And that's trying to use as many tools that you have at your disposal. Uh, but speaking for those that may not have access to all that, you know, they're going to have to guess on some things, but you have to try to make it as an educated guess as possible using the knowledge and experience that you've gained over time to know like, okay, if this person is having pain doing or soreness doing X, Y, Z, maybe we shouldn't progress past that point and maybe we should get them comfortable. But then at the same time, through your experience and knowledge, you may know like a little bit of discomfort doing this exercise, we can progress it a little bit more or go a little bit more intense because of what I've learned in the past too. So, you know, just trying to really lean on the experience and knowledge that you've gained over time um, is one of the most important things. So if you don't know, then don't try, I guess is the biggest thing of what not to do in rehab. And if you don't know, go find out. Go ask, go ask, you know, learn from others, these type of things, I think is a big one for me. Yeah. I would add to that that data is very, very important, but I don't think there is a, a magical recipe to give you of what not to do and what to do in rehab. And it, uh, it depends a lot on the athlete. For example, there are athletes that you cannot just push them and say, you have to be back in the field. And there are other athletes that would love it. To have this kind of sensation, I have to do the job because, like, next week I have to be back. Yeah, athletes I'll... that don't feel ready fast enough, and athletes that feel ready too soon. Mm -hmm. I'll second uh, Derek and saying yes, we we are using a lot more objective measures to help make decisions, um, and it's part of a bigger puzzle, right? Um, I think part of it is don't have a lack of respect for like the healing process. I think that's one. Um, another thing I would say don't do is don't discount their symptoms um, because in our line of work is like these athletes have been through multiple injuries and a hamstring strain is not just a hamstring strain. There's a lot of other components involved um, if you go into the past medical history um, and it's not just a hamstring, maybe there's quad involvement, maybe there's low back involvement. Um, and when they're complaining of something that's not normal per se, 
I think it's taking the time to dive in a little bit deeper. Um, so because if you discount their, their symptoms, sometimes you lose their trust. Um, and then, but it, it's our job as clinicians to kind of find out when it's safe to move on. And if we don't have the answer to, to count on the expertise of other experts that are around us, whether it's our physicians, if, if we can't get answers there, then we have to go somewhere else. But the, the discomfort or the pain that the athlete is feeling is real to them. So we have to have a, a certain level of respect for that. You kind of almost have to be like a Sherlock Holmes. Like it is like a mystery and yep. you kind of have to discover and figure out the clues to kind of get there. Absolutely. And it's, that's why it's important to have a, a team around you that trusts each other and, and has, um, is available to give their guidance and there's no egos. There's always egos in this field, always. But to work within a team environment that allows that conversation so we don't let our egos get in front of um, the goal of getting the, client, uh, getting the athlete better. Yeah. Anybody else before we move on to the next topic? No? Okay. So here, the next topic I want to talk about, I mean, you guys have you know, seen lots of athletes recover, right? Go to the rehab process, but what are the most surprising, good or bad, right? Cases of athletes recovery that you've come across. Maybe it was an athlete that was totally ignited, you know, misdiagnosed. They had the wrong diagnostic. They totally missed it. Uh, you know, anybody wants to share their experience? I can go just quickly. Just literally a week ago, athlete was basically cleared to go on force plate testing. So interlimb symmetry, but ultimately they even passed on like, anyways, I'm not going to talk about other tech. Um, they were good to go. They were like, hey, let's just do a walk and a run test um, with us. And like, there was lots of deficits, big asymmetries in ground contact time and peak accelerations that toe off. Then there was like a deeper conversation. The athlete was like, well, I kind of still feeling it kind of in my gluten. It was just funny. Like this literally player was just about to go back cleared by surgeons, which is kind of an interesting world that you guys have to deal with. Someone that has no hands on an athlete is giving like the thumbs up. Sometimes that's a whole other, I feel like blog posts or podcasts. Um, but yeah. yeah, just, I see not so many mistakes. It's just so often making decisions that can like literally change the course of an athlete for the rest of their life. Um, and like you rupture your second ACL, like the statistics of you coming back and playing at another level is just not really that good. So yeah, just seeing lots of those, I won't say mistakes, but just, I, I guess, you know, you guys as practitioners like Derek and, J and Jason, you kind of, you do your best and you have hard, really, really hard jobs. Um, so yeah. It's but, but, Quinn, but Quinn, is it because they, they, the, the practitioner did not follow the protocol? That the uh, that the person you know returned to play and was not supposed to, or what was the? It's the organization had a protocol that wasn't comprehensive. If I was being okay. plain, they had a protocol that was really structured around force plate testing, um, which is good. It just does not tell the whole picture, and so I think they kind of bought us kind of as like an add-on. Then we collect and like, wow, like look at all that data. We don't, we've never really done a gate test mm -hmm. on this athlete. Like we didn't really know. And then that kind of changes this course. And then there's actually more buy-in on our product, which I think is a good thing. But uh, no, I just think that their protocol was maybe two-dimensional when it okay. could have been more comprehensive. Makes sense. Um, anybody wants to jump in? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about it like a 
semi personal. I guess you know it's a personal experience, but I'll try to keep it as broad, just not to reveal certain aspects of the case. But just a learning experience for myself as you know director uh, in my time was, you know, I had a lot of trust in staff members to do rehabs and everything, but there are some times that I felt like I should have been more involved. You know, instead of you know trying to push everything there and say, okay, you're doing just fine. You know, for me, it was just a matter of you know. We had an athlete that was trying to come back from an injury and the rehab was going just fine, you know, and I just wasn't involved as I probably should have been. And there was a couple setbacks that really kept this player out for quite a while. And, you know, looking back, you know, that was a, a personal experience that, you know, helped teach me a lot more as being a leader in that area to be a little bit more hands on, be more involved, no matter the level of the player. Um, just to make sure that things are going right and also to be able to check in a little bit better. So. When you talk about like best case and worst case, you know, type scenarios, it's just, you know, for me, it was seeing somebody have multiple setbacks and, you know, my intervention was kind of lacking. And so I think as practitioners, you really, even if you have a very strong team around you, like just being a little bit involved here and there is always a good thing, you know, as a leader. And that's something that I'm definitely going to have changed in my, you know, daily profession as I move forward, because it's just, you just can't have that. And that's where all the questions and going back to our very first question about for management, it's just like, why is this happening? And if you're not having like a little bit of involvement, you know, that's a bad thing for clinicians. I mean, you delegate it too much. Yeah. A bit yeah. too much. Um, yeah, good point. Uh, anybody else? I'll second that with Derek. It's 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 having that communication. It's having multiple touch points, and and on a regular basis. Um, the reason you you have a, a team or a staff is to utilize everyone, um, but getting getting everyone on board in the same place is is a different challenge in itself. And at least at LAFC, we have a super collaborative team where we're in the same office. We have meetings all the time. We'll talk about um, uh, patient rehab, I mean, player rehabs and setbacks. Setbacks will happen. It's just a matter of how can we minimize it? And you're always going to make mistakes. It's just minimizing the mistakes and being able to confront them when they happen in a good way so it doesn't rub people the wrong way. It's like, hey, we're just trying to get better together. Um, and it does happen. And so when we have those conversations, it's like, did we do objective measures here? Should we have done them? And, or did we push them too far in this part? And uh, putting our egos to the side and saying, hey, this is what's worked for me. Why don't we try it here? Maybe, you know, um, but you're, you're always gonna have setbacks. It's just a matter of minimizing them. Yeah, makes sense. Anybody else? Yes, what I would like to add uh, to that, it's about collaboration again, but this time from a vendor's uh, perspective, because uh, as uh, as Quinn said, actually what we love as vendors is having your feedback, guys, and collaborate with you to build uh, better tools. I will give you some very concrete examples. Uh, force plates testing, force planes, what a nice tool. Everyone talked about it those days. So <clears throat> you can get, a lot of data and that's a very good thing the thing is that it's just the ground reaction force so it's a result of a bio it's a biomechanical outcome it's you do a jump and then 
you see a ground reaction force and you may see a deficit, but you don't know where it comes from. So rugby teams here in France have asked us on how can they have more insights or when does the asymmetry come from? So that's why EMGs came along. So we designed EMGs with those guys. So now we are able to build EMGs together with the force weights and having a combined signal. This kind of collaboration is very good and it helps a lot, not only us as vendors, but more uh, you guys. So this is where collaboration is important, even with us, the vendors. Okay. Thank you, Aten. Anybody else before I jump into your next topic? Just I agree. That's all. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what he so said. the only thing that I'll that I'll add, um, you know, obviously some great points is uh, not necessarily specific cases, but but one thing I've seen, you know, whether it be at the the pro level or down to you know amateur high school, is just the the overall discrepancy in treatment. You know, you'll you'll hear about you know, therapists that they get an athlete and they're like, I have no idea what this other therapist was doing. And, you know, they're so behind. Um, and, and, and so that's one thing that I've just been surprised about is just, it, it's like, you know, one end of the spectrum to the other. Um, so that's the only thing I'll add is, is just, you know, expertise and maybe even willingness to learn and keep up with, with everything that's out there. Um, you know, in terms of research of, um, you know, treatment protocols, you know, return to sport testing and, and you know, those sort of things. Okay. Can I, can I second uh, that real quick to Kevin? Yeah. There, I think there is a wide variety of, of, of ability of rehab professionals. Um, at the same time, there's, it also depends on time, right? It depending on how many staff you have to service this many athletes. Um, when we're in a busy season or we have multiple games, multiple athletes, everyone's hurt. There's just not enough time in the day to, uh, to service them the way that you would, that, that you would like to. And then even personally, right. It's like mental fatigue on our side. Like mm -hmm. uh, one of the biggest things for us is like, and having a team is to step back at times. Cause like very easy hamstring injury, go to the hamstring. But we all know like, hey, we have to take a bigger picture, look at the whole chain, this and this and that. But depending on how much time you have to work with the athlete will dictate what you do and how you do it. So I think that's that's something to just pay attention to. And even in the regular world, there's insurance practices and there's cash cash based practices. Insurance, you're seeing four people an hour. How how are you going to deliver top quality care versus more of a cash based practice? Or that's maybe one-on-one -on -one. so but that's on the outside world but even in the professional world there are some teams that are understaffed and significantly mm -hmm. and when let's say we get a player that comes from a club that may not have the funds to have uh, as many medical professionals we see it in the rehab and then they might have been the best uh, rehab professional but they just literally are their hands are tied so um, that's that's certain things that I see in, in the business as well. So it's interesting. Interesting. Uh, anybody else? Or we jump into the next topic? Okay. So uh, look, the next topic I wanted to ask you guys is: Are you guys using neurocognitive interventions and or tests in your VR protocols? And if so, which one and when are they introduced? Anybody wants to start? 
I don't have much on that in the last couple of years since I've been kind of out of the day to day stuff. So I don't know. I'd be interested to hear Kevin's perspective on this since this kind of is a uh, his area a little bit and just see what kind of experiences he may have he's come across and you know in that area. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's some good studies out there. Um, you know, over over the years from have you all heard of uh, Dustin Grooms? He's out of Ohio University. So he does a lot of uh, functional MRI research, and um, it's it's really interesting to see. Like one of his his studies that's come out um, as of late was looking at uh, neural compensation, and you know changes, um, you know that happen. You know, which everybody knows, right? It's just simply put, just compensation. You're naturally going to be, um, you know, favoring you know the the unaffected side, and um, but it's. You know, it's really interesting to see imaging with just a simple, um, you know, leg extension, the activation differences where it's requiring more brain activation for that leg extension post injury and, you know, requiring more resources. And, and so he gives some good, um, good low cost, um, you know, low tech ways to address this and, um, yeah, so I, I definitely recommend, you know, checking out some of his studies and, um, you know, what he's been putting out there. And I can even send, you know, send the most recent one to the group. Yeah. And, um, right. you know, so that's why I was curious if, if any of you guys, you know, followed his his research, kind of, you know, what your thoughts were in, in terms of cognitive motor uh, dual task, um, you know, options that he provides. It's as simple as you know doing for instance like an agility ladder and you know you're having to react um by an audible instruction of backwards forwards you know and, and you know turning you know laterally um and then counting backwards you know by seven so you know simple interventions like that that really um you know introduce dual task because you know a lot of of what's done in training you know and also in rehab is um you know single task maybe dual task but it's it's just reinforcing of of taking a step back of think about how much you're doing at one time on the field right you're scanning the field you know controlling the ball um you know getting to a point uh so it's it's simply put just trying to replicate those conditions yeah thank you kevin anybody else has any comments or thoughts on that i think I think those are very interesting points from Kevin. I um, I think we do parts of it without really thinking about it too much. And like whether it's like you're on the field, you're doing a reactionary cone drill. You have to go to one, two, three, or four. Some some athletes uh, respond better to verbal um, versus visual. Like if I point, they're they're on on track. But I'll say this is one, this is two, this is three, and it's like one. They're like uh, and then there's like a delayed reaction or like look to your left and then go one, two, three, or whatever it is. And it's interesting just to see how different athletes respond. And uh, our, our strength and fitness coaches do a version of that even in warmups. And then they'll, they'll play different games and it's funny. They're always making fun of the one that just doesn't understand. But I, I think we do it, but maybe not to the extent that we, that we should or can. And it'd be interesting to explore it a little bit more. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Jason. Hey, uh, I got the two last questions. So the first question is, during the latest stages of rehab, should athletes perform a portion of their rehab session in a fatigue state? Yes or no? 
and should return to sports testing be conducted in rested and fatigued states? Uh, anybody has any thoughts, comments on that? I say Derek. Yeah, I'll, 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 yeah, I think for the most part, you know, you're going to get them into a fatigue state at some point within the rehabilitation process anyway. So it's not necessarily like very specific that we're going to get them fatigued and then we're going to do these rehabilitate. We just know it's part of the process and, you know, just understanding where you are and what type of rehab protocol and time period that you have to be careful with what type of fatigue you're getting them to do certain exercises because that's where the breakdown can be or a setback can be because if you're just, you know, like I, we're going to do a lot of, you know, high speed distance today, but we're going to do a lot of, you know, other things first. And then you try to do that at the end when they're coming back from like a hamstring injury or something may not be the best time to do it. Although we know that going into games, most injuries do occur in the fatigue state in the like 65th, 75th plus minutes of the game in our sport of soccer. So can there be some benefit to it? Sure. But, you know, that's it's something that you don't quite know how to measure at that point within the rehab day. So it's kind of rather difficult. But as far as like doing tests in a fatigue state, I don't see that it's a big problem doing that, although most of your baselines are going to be in a fresh state. So if you're going to compare fatigue to a fresh, you know, is it beneficial? Could be. I just haven't seen much research on it, so I can't speak very much on it to whether that's something that I would can try to do in the future or not. But uh, you know, it's just a good idea for sure. Yeah, thank you, Derek. Maybe I'll look for studies on that, research on that. If I find anything, let me know. Uh, I'll second that to Derek. It's like if you're taking the high-speed running example, like someone's coming back from a hamstring injury early on the on the field. You're not going to flog them with zone five, zone six at the end of the session when they're fatigued, you know, like the risk of re-injury is rather high. So maybe early on in, in, in the process, you're doing high speed running more towards the beginning or middle. And then you hit them with zone fours towards the end. But as they progress, maybe you do a little bit more high speed in the middle and later on. So in a way, you're getting more high speed running in a fatigued state. Um, so that's like within an individual session. If you're looking at a, a training block, um, maybe an early process, it's one day on, one day in, like on the field. On the field, more gym base the next day, on the field. As they develop more fitness, and you go two on, one off. And you go three on, one off. And it's you're you're basically building that base for them. So you're, you're organically getting them in a fatigued state. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah. Thanks Jason. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, just to piggyback off of Derek's comment. Often I find groups that we work with are doing their testing after a rest day. So they're going to compare against when they're rested naturally. And so, yeah, I, to be honest, I don't really know people that are using our system or others specifically when someone's fatigued, but I do know most baseline data comes after rest days. Okay. That being said, it's true that as Derek said, uh, most of injuries uh, happen during the fatigue state. So I think the, the, the question behind it is, are there any tests that you can leave that are risk-free? Because if that were the case, why, why, why not doing in fatigue? And I will give some examples. When you talk about ankle instability and you come back out of an ankle sprain, doing unipodal single leg stance assessments like 30 seconds and check 
the center of pressure, it's something that is risk-free. On the other side, doing drop jumps after an ACL injury, that's not risk-free. And if the athlete is already tired, then there is the bigger risk of injury. Of injury. So it depends on the pathology and depends on the risk of the of the of the assessment method. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Aiden. Anybody else? Here, here's an example yeah. along those lines of, okay, am I going to do a triple hop for distance and stabilizing, or can I do a, a adductor squeeze test? with someone with a groin injury and then do it on a daily basis, which we have done just to see how their strength um, performs throughout the week and throughout a fatigued state. Um, we've done that to get a, in a way, a profile of the person. Um, but it was, it's, it's great points, you know, depending on the test. Yes. Yeah. You right. don't want the injury just because you did a test. Right. Right. Anybody else? Yeah. Other comments? Yeah, I was yeah I was curious about that because I know um, you know some uh, staffs you know utilize our technology and get them in a fatigue state on there and looking at the ground contact times, you know how how those change you know uh, from beginning of the exercise to end and that's just in thirty seconds and um, but it's it's uh, <laughs> it, it's definitely a long period of time um, you know going going full out so. Um, that's, I was curious to hear, you know, what, um, you know, everybody's feedback was on it. And I know there's, you know, there's, you know, a good number of studies out there, you know, on there that, that do show some changes, uh, like one meta-analysis, uh, showed that, uh, fatigue seemed to mostly affect, um, initial contact. So decreased angles, uh, post fatigue and, um, peak, um, you know, increased angle, increased angles. Um, post fatigue hit the knee flexion so there's interesting research out there but again it's it's all about um you know doing so in a safe environment and you know within within your bandwidth right yeah and also doing it in a motivated uh scenario because trying to get a fatigued athlete to say okay now we're going to do these type of tests and it goes back to relationship psychological these type of things and what specific tests is there going to be a risk is there no risk because you can work an athlete out really hard on the field and say we're going to get in the gym we're going to do these you know lifts but we're going to kind of slide this test in there again it goes back to what type of athlete because you can have some that are like bone ho about everything and like yes i want to do this no problem all right whatever it takes and then you have some like i'm just i'm dead i don't want to do this and then the effort level that they're going to give in a test how good a data is that going to give you because if they are already fatigued, if they don't try very hard, is it going to be even worse? And then is that going to change your mindset and how close they are to return? That makes sense. Uh, thank you, Derek. Anybody else? You also have the Hawthorne yep. effect. So we know that when people are being tested and they know they're being observed, they don't actually move in a natural way. So it's just even testing to go off of what Derek just said, even when you do test, that's not really how they're moving. So you have to take like, that's well understood across almost any type of uh, test. When we're observed, we don't really act normal. So that's just always a, a thought that I come in, in any testing. You just have to be conscious of that. Yep, great point, Quinn. Yep, nobody else? No? Yeah, so look, we're, we're at the end of the podcast, but I wanted to thank everyone for your time today. As always, great insight, so thank you. 
Thanks, thanks Julian. for having us. Yep, thanks. thanks, Julian. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To access past episodes and other research, articles, and analysis of sports technology, please visit our website, theupside.us. Subscribe to the Upside newsletter and receive full access to our sports tech business letter and website. Royalty-free music is provided by ibaudio.com. The Upside podcast provides timely insights and interviews with global leaders in sports technology. Until next time, keep looking to the Upside.